everybody. Thanks for joining us. I am Mark Raven, a senior advisor to Kinexus, and welcome to episode 19 of our Ask Us Anything series. And uh, we're joined today by Greg Jacobson. If you want to introduce yourself, how's it going? Hello, Mark. I'm Greg Jacobson. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Kinexus. I also manage product, and I love doing these sessions with Mark. So what, what does that mean? Maybe you know, somebody might be wondering, even if they haven't asked, what does that mean to manage the product? Can you oh, talk great. about that in a nutshell? Because people might be curious how Kinexus works behind the scenes a little bit. Yeah, so managing the product basically means that I attempt to have my finger on the pulse of what all our customers are doing in the platform, what are the greatest needs, and uh, balancing that with our vision, sometimes where we want to take the platform, sometimes customers don't know what, what they want because they haven't just thought of something, for instance. And so I would say about 80 to 90% of our development is almost direct feedback from our customers where sometimes people will jump to a solution, but hopefully we're, we're always getting to the root problem they're trying to solve. Oftentimes we can make one feature that will solve a half dozen customers' problems, maybe in slightly different ways. And then you combine that with figuring out, well, what parts of the code are going to be affected by that? And so you get some economies of scale of, oh, if we did these 10 tickets all together, the developers will um, have some speed that's built into that. And then also making sure the developers aren't stepping on each other so that we don't like two or three developers all working in the same area code because it gets very difficult for them. So we basically kind of put all of that together and then put a roadmap together so we know what we want to do in the short term, maybe the next three to six months. And we put that all into sprints, and those sprints can, can last anywhere from about three to four weeks now. We've actually changed our process in the last three months. have gone from a three-week sprint cycle to a four-week sprint cycle. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to be really agile. I mean, that's kind of we, – we utilize many of the principles of agile – development, which in many ways is a manifestation of applying lean principles into a software world. But for example, we're, we're finishing our .9 version up here in the next couple of days, and we don't 100% know what we want in our dot, I'm sorry, our .8 version. We don't 100% know what we want in our .9 version. We're about 90% of the way there, but I'm going to be meeting with the entire customer experience team. We're going to look over all the candidates for dot nine and then figure out what will work on next. That maybe that was a little bit too much, yeah. but um, that whole process takes about 50% of my day. And I'm, I'm the main person in the company. I, that, that owns product management, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, and if people watching have more questions about how software is made, what's the process for creating process improvement software, um, you can submit those. Uh, for future Ask Us Anythings. But going into questions people have asked from our Kinexus community, there's a question from, uh, from Mark, a different Mark. So much is written about systems and tools uh, for, to use for Lean and Six Sigma, but if changing to a continuous improvement culture requires starting with leadership, what actions and behaviors must leadership uh, in the top and the middle take along with systems and tools? Um, I mean, I think that's a great question. If you look at how Toyota leaders talk about the Toyota production system and our adaptations of that into Lean, they talk about technical methods, managerial methods, 
philosophy and culture. I think one of the most important things, um, I, if, I, if I were to pick one, is leading by example. So it's one thing, I think, to look at an organization like Toyota, where they can legitimately say TPS, that's by definition, that's the way they do things. They have this culture, leaders have been brought up through the ranks in that culture. What I see in organizations that are trying to go on what they might call a lean transformation, it's really challenging because leaders at the top often have decades of habits and they're used to operating in the old system. So I think you know that culture change, if it's going to happen, starts at the top. So leading by example, I think includes modeling behaviors that you want to see cascade through the rest of the organization. So one would be you know, to stop blaming individuals for systemic problems. If we don't create uh, a safe environment for people to speak up and, and point out problems, we'll, we'll never have anything close to continuous improvement. And I think another thing um, I'd point to, and, and Greg, are, are we still connected? Um, I, I lost you for a bit of time, but I hear you now. You know, I thought I'd gotten to the root cause of what are sometimes internet problems <laughs> here. So we'll see if that caused a problem uh, in the recording or not. But I mean, I think, you know, for, for leaders to model behaviors, um, not blaming, not jumping to solutions. And I think that's that's sort of the ironic thing of yeah, how do we get um, a culture of improvement? Sometimes it means focusing first on better understanding the problems before we jump into improvement. Greg, if we still have, sure. what, okay, yeah, you're still there. What, what do you I, think? What would you I'm add? here and for whatever it's worth, the, the dev office said your audio came through fine throughout all of that. So it may have just okay. been on, on our side. Well, I, I think this is a great, a great question because it really gets to the heart of what are the first steps gonna be? So let's take it from a organization that really hasn't been applying or practicing any of these, these concepts. And, and I think starting with leadership is 100% the right thing to do. But I, I think one, um, it, well, there's actually another question a little bit further down on, on kind of how to engage with, with leadership. But what, what I think that the actions that speak the most is, is talking about it um, repetitively. I think the worst thing a leader can do is kind of bring it up once and then never get back to that subject. And so it, it needs to be just part of the normal communication process, whether a leader is having face-to-face -face communication, whether that's in meetings, whether that's in the larger um, kind of town hall -y kind of scenarios, or whether that's just via electronic communication, there needs to be some mention of that. Yeah. Now, after that communication of, of, of the fact that, hey, we're, we're moving into this mindset, that communication needs to also specify why we're moving into the mindset. And these are the things that we hope to accomplish. But um, I, I think the hardest thing for leaders is gonna be that, that they need to come into this process with open ears and closed mouths and with you know, humility and with respect for the people that are doing work. And, and I think that's really easy to say it's, mm -hmm. it's a little bit harder to do because when you do right. all those things, you end up feeling extreme vulnerability. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it actually, by the, by the employees that matter, it's actually viewed as a sign of strength. And um, 
that you're not going to feel comfortable with in the first week. You're not going to feel comfortable with in the first month. I mean, some of the conversations I've had and the things I've read, it, it can take a leader upwards of a 12 to 24 months before truly being in that type of mindset feels comfortable and feels like the right thing and um, to do. And so um, I, I think those those are some of the actions and behaviors. But but I think then the leaders also going to have to develop a system of are you focusing on top down things? And if it's top down things, well, let's create a little bit of alignment. And if it's bottom up things, well, let's let's figure out what's that mechanism looks like. And that's not telling what people it's going to be this this process collaborative. You'll come together. And and then just remember that it, it's going to take your whole life to do it. And so. Yeah. It doesn't really mean it's baby steps. Just start somewhere and, and you'll continue to iterate and get better at it over time. And as long as people realize if you kind of work on your jump shot, you're not going to figure it out in one one hour practice session. It takes a lifetime to get a really good jump shot. Yeah. And, and I think developing those habits over time, like we had a comment come in here um, mentioning you know, the difference between implementing tools like Kanban or TPM or 5S as opposed to deploying a scientific method for problem solving. So each of those tools hopefully is viewed as a countermeasure to a problem that the organization has. And I think even at a higher level, we could call lean a countermeasure to organizational or business yeah. problems. So if someone says, well, our strategy, our goal for the, for the year is to start implementing lean, well, well why? Like what to, right. to what point and, and what purpose? And, and I think that is another way leaders can lead by example of having this connection between uh, problem and countermeasure. And, and that's a different thing. The model talking about countermeasures instead of solutions. Right. Where right. Solu the word solution sounds so uh, sometimes inappropriately definitive. It's it's funny you say that it would almost be as if a position approached each patient exactly the same, right? I mean, there's going to be a problem-solving methodology that you'll approach exactly the same. But if a person's coming in with an ankle problem, you're probably going to focus your exam on the ankle. You might do cursory exam on other parts. And if a person comes with a chest problem, you're going to focus it on the chest. And if a person comes with an ankle problem, you're probably not going to get an EKG on the person. It's the wrong tool to figure out what the problem is. And so, and so I think you could almost apply that just one for one into, into lean and, and, and the, the overall arching concept of history and, and, and physical of, of starting with what's your chief complaint and what's the story and the, um, the, the review of systems and the past medical, that process could could correlate to a PDSA cycle. And, yep. and really that PDSA is just an overarching concept. Then you might be interjecting different tools at different parts of that that are appropriate to learn more about the problem you're looking at. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move. We've got another question from uh, Matt. What's your favorite Kinexus feature? What's the coolest and most underused feature that you wish more people would try? Well, I'll make a case for people checking out and trying uh, the control chart functionality. So it's it's one thing uh, for, for people to uh, track their metrics in Kinexus, but the control chart functionality, um, you know, builds on the statistical methods. I've done webinars uh, about this 
uh, it's a, a favorite topic of mine, of calculating uh, upper and lower control limits for that metric. So you can learn where that metric is fluctuating and use those limits to basically tell the difference between what you might call signal and noise in the metric. Because I think a lot of times people, we do this even sometimes internally at Kinexus, we uh, overreact to every up and down or try to overexplain every up and down. And um, the control chart functionality in Kinexus um, is really helpful that way. What would you say, Greg? Yeah, and, and just to add to the control chart part, I think what the real power in, in it lies where you can set up your filters to filter charts that are out of control. So literally they can kind of be out of mind, out of sight. Persons are entering data points, but then when you hit the board that kind of gives you the information that's important for you to work through on a, on a, a regular basis, the charts and the data that are out of control can be front and center. And, and then you can be reminded to go in because quite frankly, if it's in control, it's not something that is a red flag that you should be, you know, checking every day. Certainly, you know, checking in control charts for more underlying trends like eight points above or below. There's some more nuance, but that doesn't need to be done daily. But if something is out of control, you really want to know about that um, in a in a more time sensitive manner. And so I will say that that more to come on control charts in Kinexus. I think that it's an area that a lot of our customers are using and we will be, we have some really, really nice features that we have slated to be developed more in the short term versus long term on that. So my favorite feature in Kinexus is, is one that's going to be kind of surprising, I think, but I really focus on workflow optimization for my email, for my to-do lists. I think everyone kind of hears me talk a little bit about how I manage email in, in very particular ways. And so to me, the, the notification window, notification panel is, is, the, is my favorite feature because we've developed a lot of the um, ways to highlight improvements, projects, charts, items in, in a way that literally you can just click on that bell and you can start at the top of that list and you can go down it. And when you're done, you know that you have read and looked at everything that you should have done in that time. And then um, so from, from my standpoint, that's my personal workflow. I don't, I almost do nothing else in Kinexus from a personal side, except for once a month, I go in and look at KPI um, updates. Now, at, when we're doing meetings, those meetings are done all off of boards and those boards are optimized for the intent of the meeting. But if, if, if we're talking about just what I do, um, and, and I think that the, the other part of this question was um, underutilized feature. I can't tell you how many people, when we're talking to a customer, I'll mention the reporting area and we'll say something to the effect of, oh, well, have you looked at this report? And do you understand why this report even exists? And they'll say, I've never even, I didn't even know that, that report exists or ever thought about why I would want to use that report. So if you're if you're looking to find hidden gems in Kinexus, I would, I would go to the reporting area. And there's a reason behind every report, canned report that we've created. And so I would um, I would go through those systematically and, and look at the chart and say, or the report and say, well, what is this telling me? Why would why would they have created this? And, and now that I'm thinking about it, I'm going to do one more and then I'll be quiet. <coughs> a lot of people don't realize that you can control the columns on a list 
and a card in the um, collapsed view versus the expanded view. So a lot of our boards are they'll have multiple cards. And so you really only have room for maybe two or three columns when it's small, but then when you click on the expand, you have much more room and you can actually control which columns are in the, the, the card view versus when you go to the full expand view, you might be able to see eight or 10 columns. And, um, and that's kind of us mirroring a lot of the, the best parts of spreadsheets. Cause I mean, there's a reason why everyone went to Excel initially. Um, it wasn't just cause it was ubiquitous because I mean, spreadsheets do solve lots of different problems. So I think we've, continually to try to take the best part of spreadsheets and just put them in Kinexa so they're easy to access and easy to update. But Yeah. All right, cool. Um, here's another question, and I'll try to answer it maybe in a context um, outside of software and have you mention you know, answer it in a um, software context. So Becca asked, when it comes to bringing awareness to continuous improvement ideas that are in a backlog, what's the best way to do this without having all employees log into software to view the backlog. So I wanted to touch on the backlog part yep. of that question because I see in my travels, um, you can see a backlog in software. You can see a backlog on a huddle board where you see lots of ideas have been solicited and written down, problems have been identified, they're posted. You might have uh, what's called a pick chart where you're um, prioritizing high and low effort, high and low impact. And sometimes even things that are considered low effort high impact will sit on that board for weeks or months or a very long time. So I think a lot of times people get used to seeing the backlog. That becomes the normal. Like, oh yeah, there's a backlog. Well, then I think what's helpful, what I would propose is step back and asking why. Why is there a backlog? Why are we not making progress? Sometimes the answer is, well, those two people are the only ones who work on improvements. Well, how do you think we could clear that backlog? Yeah. And so like, well, we could have more than two people involved in improvement. So I, I would question the inevitability of a backlog and instead look at that as uh, a bottleneck, figure out what can we do um, to, to reduce that backlog. What do you think, Greg? Yeah, and I think that I think it's important to realize that. Depending on the amount of, if we're talking about just bottom up, which I, th I think this question really talks about, yeah, ideas. So it's all bottom up stuff. Um, is is to realize that there there may be a capacity issue, and and if there is a capacity issue and the number of ideas outweigh the capacity, then to me that's the leadership's responsibility to figure out how do you solve the capacity issue and is solving the capacity issue have an ROI to the organization. Now, it could have an ROI in that it could um, you know, literally just save the company money because some of those ideas are cost savings, or it could have an ROI in that if you ignore people's um, ideas, they'll stop giving it to you. So there's lots of different ways that they could have benefit the organization to not have a backlog. I didn't want to kind of pigeonhole that. So mm -hmm. after the capacity issue, there's always going to be some form of capacity issue because we're all busy, right? I mean, successful companies are just typically more work that needs to be done and time to do it. And so there is going to need to be a habit developed and a pick chart is a very good way to help prioritize. The The other way to help prioritize is um, you know, a lot of our customers will literally put Kinexes on a wall and we have a board experience where if we're looking um, at a backlog, we can 
just in the team huddle say, hey, guys, these are the 20 things that kind of have gone stale. We have a card um, that we use in our weekly meeting that's called stagnant improvement. So if nothing's happened to them for the last 30 days, uh, we can talk about these and say, hey, are we we all happy with the fact that no one's doing anything with these or what's the what's the hold up? Um, and and then I'll also mention that there's really two statuses that have to, to do with um, backlog. So for one, when you go in, I'll answer this from the Kinexus perspective. One, when something goes into Kinexus, it goes in as a new status. It should never stay in a new status for very long, ideally less than 48 hours, but certainly not more than, than seven days. Um, now, I will say that w we put our product ideas into Kinexus and everyone knows that I review new product ideas on a weekly basis. And so sometimes they do stay in new status for, for long, but everyone, I think I've communicated to everyone that I just go through them in the oldest and we're just kind of moving through them on a, on a weekly basis. Um, so then after new, it either needs to go into plan status, which means we're gonna work on this. We may just not know when we're gonna work on it or who's gonna work on it, or we're gonna work on this and it's going to be worked on in two weeks, or we're gonna work on this and it's gonna be worked on when this other thing is completed. There's, there's three options when you go into plan status. The second place that new can go to is right into active status. Yes, Mark's great idea, let's go work on this right now. Uh, let's not delay. And then the, I guess there's four, you could immediately go into complete status because you could say, hey, um, but you put it in. I said, okay, before our next huddle, we actually went and did it. So we can just immediately complete it and wrote, write down what we did. Or it can go into deferred status. And the idea of that was, I don't know if we really want to do it ever, but I don't want to make the decision to kibosh it now. And mm -hmm. so we'll defer it. And we recommend for deferred things to put a review date on them. So in some time, it can kind of come back into your into your workflow and go, oh yeah, we need, to, did we want to do this or not? Because if we don't, let's, let's kind of kill it. So, right. Does that, but I mean, this is all going to be discipline and habit and, and, and not saving up to where there's eight hours of work to, to do to get through that backlog, but you're just, you're running through, you know, five or 10 things in 10 or 15 minutes to see, Hey, this is a, a, a low effort, high benefit, high impact. Like we're fools not to do this. I mean, we're just, we're leaving, you know, the easy, the easy pickings. Yeah. Okay. Um, we got another question here. Um, I think it's uh, first name is pronounced Dwee. I apologize if if I have that wrong. Um, what are the most uh, common safety leadership principles available now? Things like having a vision, accountability, engagement, leading by examples. Um, do you have examples of safety leadership behavior? So I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, for one, like I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I think one of the key leadership principles is creating an environment where it's safe to speak up, where it's safe to point out risks, where it's safe to admit we've had a near miss, where it's safe to admit we've made a mistake. Because without that safety, I've, I've been in an organization where people talk a lot about professional safety. And, and, and this doesn't rely, uh, relate only to environments that involve patient safety or employee safety. Do I feel safe to disagree with somebody? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that um, is driven by leadership. The word accountability in the question here, uh, something else I'll, I'll comment on. Like a lot of times when I hear 
the phrase, we've got to hold people accountable. What that really means is we're going to uh, punish people, which I think, you know, it sounds um, counterproductive, not a good behavior for improving safety, because when there's this reliance on punishment, that drives people to get better at hiding and covering up problems or risks, which slows down uh, or prevents us from improving. So I think leaders need to sort of reframe what accountability means. Is accountability forced or is accountability something people can take on because the environment and the system allows them to operate safely? And I think one other principle I'll mention is the idea of, I think, leaders truly making safety a top priority, not a slogan or something they talk about once a quarter. Let me remind you how important safety is. Like, well, no, you should be reminding that that should be every single day. Um, uh, you know, I think you know, there are certain leaders out there I really admire who um, really and truly make safety a top priority. Um, I, I mean, I think you know the the you, you've got to walk the talk, as they say, not just um, not just talk about safety. Well, Paul Allen comes to mind. I mean, he was the first leader. I mean, Paul O'Neill. I'm sorry, Paul O'Neill. Thank you. Um, I always I always mix up Paul um, with Alcoa, right? Paul O'Neill was Alcoa. Yeah. Yeah. So was I mean, you introduced me to to one of his keynotes, and I remember still watching it for the first time today. And it safety is such an easy. It's so obvious once someone says it that you're kind of like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Right? I mean, he went into a dysfunctional organization that was having financial difficulties and uh, um, decided, hey, we're, we have you know, major cultural um, dysfunctional communication issues in this organization and the financial metrics are, are tanking. And he said, you know, I'm not going to focus on any of that, which I thought was okay. And then he said, let's focus on something that we can all agree on. So maybe we can't all agree on hourly wages and benefits and all that. But if we can all align around something that that makes sense for everybody, that um, that becomes a really great place to start. And I was in a prospective customer meeting last week and I can't wait till till they they actually sign up, and because uh, I asked, oh, what what are y'all's major principles? And immediately he said, oh, safety is the number one um, principle that that we are um, all aligned around. As a, and I was just like, oh wow, this is as overhead door uh, manufacturing company. I was like, oh, this is, I mean, just that it was it was there was no hesitation, and immediately realized that. So. To me, I think that it almost sounded like, you know, what's the flavor du jour, you know, safety leadership principles available now? I, I don't, as if they I maybe were classic. I think they're timeless principles. Right. That's kind of where I, where, I mean, you want to make sure that, that people have the right resources, that um, they have the right training, the right equipment. They And then I think the biggest thing that I see, at least in healthcare, is that you don't get punished either. Sometimes you get punished directly, like, oh, you should have done it this way. I'm going to punish you. It's going to go into charge. But sometimes punishment is even in the fr framework of, oh, my God, this is going to be so much work for me to report this because the, the process is so onerous. And, 
you know, and, and then I have to follow up with it versus, oh, if I just kind of on a near miss, don't don't say anything. We'll just kind of move on. So much opportunity in healthcare is lost because the the process is, is so labor intensive. Yeah, um, we're short on time, but we had a kind of follow up question. I'm curious your thoughts as a physician, Greg. Um, what do you think of the idea of a wall of shame? So I, I'm already starting to feel like I don't like it, but um, the idea that to improve hand hygiene for doctors and interns, you would post clinicians' names, like you know who's got 20% adherence to hand hygiene, who's at 85, putting names in red and green. I mean, I'll just say I don't like that idea because I, I don't think shame is a a helpful starting point for continuous improvement. I, I, I just, I don't like the sound of that. I don't think I like yeah. practice of that. What, what's your reaction as a doctor, Greg? There, there is certainly a part of me that would kind of at the gut level would be attracted to it. Right. I mean, it's just like, Oh, that makes sense. If, if you call out the people that are doing it bad, they're going to want to do better. I think the problem is, is I think as soon as you go down this route, you immediately start gaming the system, right? Mm -hmm. All the motivations are wrong. It kind of gets into um, Daniel Pink's drive. So if, if you're doing it with a, with a stick, then then everything is going, oh, well, people will figure out a way to get green and it may not be good hand hygiene. And they may be just, you know, messing with the system to, to create that. So I think, I think certainly starting with, why do we want good hand hygiene? Well, because we don't want to get our patients sick. Okay, well, that's probably one of the reasons why we came to work today was to make patients better. Why would we? And so just keep harping on that and then keep, you know, if you know, oh, well, Greg only has a 20% compliance on this, maybe ask Greg why he doesn't do better. And you might find out a really easy reason. Oh, well, because of X, Y, and Z. And if, if, if it worked like this, and then you could kind of start at it from an opportunity for improvement kind of standpoint. So I think probably keeping the, um, the data is good, but then kind of engaging on a one-on-one -on -one level versus, um, you know, putting them on the public courtyard and going, that person is really bad, will probably get greater um, engagement and satisfaction. And then when you're moving on to, the next thing you're working on, people are going to want to work on that versus like, oh, I'm about to get shamed again into something else. Right. So, now, right. I will tell you, um, one way to do that very nicely is when you communicate to the person, you, here is your hand hygiene to show you, show that where do you, where do you fall in the spectrum? Are you doing awesome or, or are you doing, and a lot of times, I mean, that's how a lot of the communication for your patient satisfaction scores or your your billing scores will we'll just kind of show you where you are in the spectrum of your colleagues. And it's all de-identified. So you don't know who's above or who's below you, but you're like, oh, okay, I'm in the middle. I'm, you know, probably not going to get called in or, you know, this is kind of where my starting point. I think there's a lot of benefit to that. Yeah. And, I, and I've heard, I mean, I've heard some people say, oh, doctors are competitive and posting data about, you know, OR block time utilization and other factors. Um, I, I would be afraid the effect of that would be at best temporary, but I'm, I'm with you, Greg. Data should be used for improvement, not for punishment. And like you said, having that data, talking about uh, systemic factors and barriers, um, I, I think is, um, I think that's the more sustainable approach. And, and 
and we're, we're over time here, but I think talking to doctors, not just about what you need to do, but talking about their motivation. Right. What are the barriers? Articulate why hand hygiene is important because they know it. Um, but there, there are certain barriers or behaviors getting in the way. Um, I, I would rather have something that's more of a discussion than just a, a, a public shaming. Well, what were your, what would your thoughts, Mark, be on you know, an award every month of the top hand hygiene or a top ten percent? Uh, I, I have that same hesitation uh, about stripping away intrinsic motivation and turning it into a game, and the focus becomes the metric. And am I just kind of going through the motions enough to hey, nope, see count? And, you know, and, and I don't know if these measures are really ever accurate. Um, I, I, I would focus more on the end result measures. If we have better hand hygiene uh, adherence rates or compliance rates, are we seeing lower infection rates? I mean, I think those are ultimately the things that matter right. um, more so than the intermediate measure that could be distorted, gamed, what have you. Yep. yep. Great question. Yeah. Oh, and so the person who asked that question is a follow-up. The punchline of the story, uh, this organization apparently that's doing this is five years down the road and they have no significant improvement on nosocomial mm. infection numbers, hospital acquired infection numbers. So if we were being tested, maybe we uh, passed the test. I don't know, but <laughs> interesting to hear that. Um, thank you for is, is, anyone knows, remembers Paul Harvey, that was, and the rest of the story. That would be the little, I'm dating myself, that's a really old, outdated uh, reference. So people can Google uh, Paul Harvey, old radio host. Anywho, um, we are a little over time, so I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. We've got um, a lot of questions that are still, speaking of backlogs, in the question backlog, I apologize. If you tuned in and didn't get your answer questions, sometimes there's a lag of an episode or two. Uh, we will schedule an episode 20. Um, we have some upcoming webinars. I would encourage you to go to kinexus.com slash webinars. There's, um, we're gonna, uh, Jeff Roussel, our VP of sales is gonna do a demo webinar on uh, April 26th. I'm gonna be hosting and, and doing a little bit of co-presenting on May 7th uh, with a friend who is a doctor of veterinary medicine. So we're gonna be talking about applications of uh, lean in, um, as I've learned a little bit, I've worked with vets that making the leap from what they call human healthcare, we would just call it healthcare, right, Craig? Making the leap from human healthcare to um, what I've heard vets, uh, veterinarians refer to as multi-species medicine. Ah, interesting. So they might say they're different, but lean principles still apply. So we'll, we'll explore that and uh, encourage you to register at kinexus.com slash webinars. And, and when adult doctors are teasing child doctors, kid doctors, pediatricians, we always say, oh, they're just small adults. This would be like, oh, they're just very hairy humans. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for um, tuning in or for watching uh, the recording. I, I would encourage you, please subscribe to the Kinexus YouTube channel. We post these videos, other contents there. You can um, get this content in audio form through um, Kinexus podcast. You can find that through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all sorts of other places. And, and please do check out our website at Kinexus.com. 
Greg, I'd like to leave you with the final word. I would just like to remind everyone, keep improving, everyone.